in the sky over the last few nights, you may have seen some of those streaks in the air. It's because we're in the middle of a meteor shower. And so today we have the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. You know what? I think it's time for a podcast. So here we go with episode 16 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And I am your host, Sean. And today we're going to talk about two games, actually. Something that hasn't been done yet before, and um, I will not be getting in the habit of doing. We're going to be talking about Meteor Shower and Shoot the UFO 2015. They are homebrew titles done by Bob DiCrescenzo and Breck Brixius, respectively. Both games are based on the Intellivision game Astro Smash, which would, of course, later be released by M Network on the Atari 2600 under the title Astro Blast. And it would be a little bit less featured as Astro Blast. But before we go on, you know how I kind of like to talk about, well, nothing in particular. Um, first, actually, this isn't really much nothing in particular, I should say. I do want to catch up. We did have a comment about ripoff literally right when the episode was released. So I just want to catch up on that. This one is from Trek MD, very frequent contributor of thoughtful feedback. And it's always a pleasure to read what Trek MD has to say. And in this case, Trek MD has to say, I think I must have missed this thread. And I saw you have just posted the new episode about ripoff. Sorry about that. Uh, no need to apologize. <laughs> Here is my feedback for Ripoff. Ripoff was released in the arcades in 1980 by Cinematronics, and it has the distinction of being the first arcade game to feature cooperative gameplay and flocking behavior. And if uh, you're a new listener or missed episode 15, uh, I refer you to episode 15 if you don't know what flocking behavior is. Anyway, he goes on to say... Uh, because the game uses vector graphics, it was only ported to the Vectrex console until Bob DiCrescenzo decided to give it a try on the Atari 7800, given his experience with Asteroids Deluxe. In the game, you are in command of a tank-like vehicle that is charged with protecting fuel canisters from groups of pirates who use tanks to steal them. The game is organized in waves where anywhere from two to three pirate tanks appear at a time. Once you destroy all the tanks in a given wave, you move on to the next wave with bonus stages occurring after a certain number of waves. In the single player game, the player's vehicle appears to the left of the screen, with the second vehicle appearing on the right side in a two player game. Interestingly, you do not have a limited number of lives in ripoff as the game ends only when all of the fuel tanks have been stolen. This means that you can use your ship to ram enemies to destroy them if need be. The 7800 version of Ripoff captures the gameplay of the arcade well and does have nice graphics and sound. There are three levels of difficulty to select, easy, normal, hard, which vary the number of canisters to protect, the number of pirate ships that appear, and their speed, Ripoff remains a fun game to this day, and this 7800 version is well worth having. Trek MD, thank you. I totally agree with that uh, last set. Well, I agree with all the sentiments. You pretty much presented nothing but facts. It's nothing that I can 
agree or disagree with. But the last thing you say, ripoff remains a fun game to this day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Highly enjoy it. Highly enjoy it. And I talked about before how it frustrates the heck out of me. But at the same time, it's fun frustration. I don't know how else to explain it. Great game. I'd be really interested in seeing a raster version of that, actually. But, hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a podcast for all of you, for uh, all two of you. <laughs> Let me see. What else do I have to talk about? Oh, and I did get some feedback on a prior episode. Actually, it's for this episode, but it was uh, because of what I said on a prior episode. <laughs> this is from uh, Ryan Gavigan, who's also known as Gav, with uh, three consecutive Vs on Atari Age. Hi, not a very big erratum. Just wanted to clarify that the Intellivision game that Meteor Shower is based on is Astro Smash, not Astro Blast. Astro Blast is what Mattel called the 2600 Astro Smash conversion. Not a big deal at all. Just wanted to clarify so Keith wouldn't haunt the show. <laughs> anyway, great podcast. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Gav. That was very kind of you to say that. And uh, I don't know. I got a feeling Keith would let it slide. I don't think he'd uh, bother us too much over that. <laughs> but yeah, you can understand. It's an easy Astro Smash, Astro Blast. It's kind of like how when I said Crazy Climber and I meant to say Crazy Kong. And uh, you know how things are, you know. But uh, hey, thank you for that um, for that heads up. I really appreciate it. And going back even further, on Atari Age, we had some feedback from Lord Thag, T-H-A-G, about Space Duel, and Lord Thag says, I love Space Duel with a Starplex controller. It's like having the arcade in my house. I find it hard to play any of the other Asteroids versions in place of it. It's the cream of the crop right up there with Space Rocks on the VCS. And thank you for that, Lord Thag. And Space Rocks, I think I mentioned this before, but yeah, if you have an Atari, well, if you have a 7800, you have a 2600 for all practical purposes, but uh, check out Space Rocks. It is a awesome homebrew. And the Starplex controller, that's the uh, the one with the Asteroids buttons on it, so you can play it just like you're playing the arcade game. I mentioned before I have uh, a sim an almost similar controller, and I'm actually finding that it's easier for me to use a joystick. I don't know what's up with that. But hey, thanks again, Lord Thag. And uh, I think that's it for feedback for prior topics. One thing I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but one thing I really don't have the slightest desire to discuss is Atari Box. Quite simply because, you know, what's the point? It's, it's only Atari in name. And um, I have what I want. I have my Atari 7800. I have um, actually a couple of 2600s here that I'm going to be modding. I have a, I have computers, I have a GPDXD Android thing that's built specifically for game playing. I mean, I have what I need. I'm not a fan of most modern games, so I don't even know what this is all about, and I really don't care. And I just realized now I spent a lot of time talking about something that I don't care about. So, next subject. Oh, and other Atari-related news, um... Because I'm going to be talking about Shoot the UFO 2015, I had a few questions for Breck Brixius, and uh, he and I had a back-and-forth conversation for a little bit on Atari Age, and um, 
something he said kind of made me think maybe I should do some kind of a homebrew, either for the 2600 or 7800. So um, I'm actually um, have one in the works right now as I as I talk. <laughs> I'm going to start it actually in a language I'm familiar with, like JavaScript or PHP or something, maybe even C. And um, once I get it working it that way, I'm just basically going to translate it into Atari Basic or whatever the uh, or 7800 Basic or whatever it's called. And um, I'm not going to put it on a cartridge or anything because I don't think it's going to be worth uh, actually charging money for or anything like that. But hey, you could use it on a multi-cart or on an emulator. And um, I'll give more details uh, as it progresses, as I decide to progress. <laughs> but uh, we'll see how that goes. It's not going to be anything hugely impressive or anything. Just kind of a proof of concept, more or less, and uh, more details later. Anyway. Oh, by the way, when you heard, when I was reading Trek MD's contribution about ripoff you may have noticed i was kind of overpronouncing a few things and that's something i noticed when i was listening back to my podcasts i do listen back to them just to see how they turn out it's not an ego thing or anything believe me but something that i noticed is that for some reason a lot of times it sounds like the first letter is being dropped off of the first sentence that i say I don't know why. It might be the microphone. It just might be some kind of uh, fast-talking northern U.S. habit I have. I don't know, but I'm trying to be much more confident about that. But we'll see what happens with that. Uh, But enough about that. I want to talk about something very important. First of all, in the Atari Age store, if you haven't heard by now, well, welcome to uh, the world of Atari homebrews. The new Atari 7800, 2600, and 5200 homebrews are finally available for everybody in the Atari Age store. It looks like for the 2600, there's Anguna, Assemblades 2600, um, what else? Drive! Um, the Gizzlewap and the Strange Red Tree. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to look into that one. <laughs> I eventually plan to look in on all this stuff. It all looks great. There's uh, a Lem. Panky the Panda and Scramble, which I've heard raves about. I haven't seen it myself, but Scramble for the 2600 of that is probably going to be something worth looking into. For the 5200, there's a game called Rat Catcher, which uh, um, I haven't really looked a heck of a lot into it, but it looks a little bit like maybe Mario Brothers or Mappy. Um, I'm not much of a 5200 fan. I think I mentioned before I had one for a couple of years and I didn't really like it, so I traded it. Uh, with uh, my Pie Factory podcast co-host, uh, Jimmy G, and uh, I traded it for his Atari 600XL, which I've hardly touched, and I really should uh, use a lot more, because there's some good stuff for the Atari 8-bit computers and uh, consoles and things. But uh, for the Atari 7800, we now have Crystal Quest featuring Bentley Bear, Super Circus Atari Age, and Time Salvo. I mentioned that I already have those. I'm an Atari Age subscriber, And one benefit of being an Atari Age subscriber is you get first dibs on the new homebrews. So I pounced on those three things right away. And the thing about uh, Crystal Quest and Super Circus Atari Age is those both use the Pokey Chip. And Pokey Chips are getting rarer and rarer by the second. So those are going to be kind of costly. All these games come with boxes, by the way. But Crystal Quest, it looks like the price is... um, I think it's $65 for a whole package, $55 if you send a pokey chip, either a standalone pokey chip or a ball blazer cartridge. 
And the same goes for Super Circus Atari Age, if I'm not mistaken. 65 bucks and uh, $10 off if you supply the Pokey. And with that money, by the way, you get the cartridge, you get the manual, you get the box, and an Atari Age catalog. And it is a beautiful-looking catalog. It really is, the, the layout and everything, not to mention uh, the actual content of the catalog, too. Always looks promising, but uh, that's that looks really, really great. And I also want to give a shout out to uh, Michael Thomason over at Good Deal Games, who has a book out called Downright Bizarre Games, Video Games That Crossed the Line. And um, he is currently running a special over at Good Deal Games, where if you order that book and mention the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast, Good Deal Games will take $5 off, they'll ship the book to you for free, and Michael will personalize and autograph the book as well. I've ordered from Good Deal Games several times, including uh, one of the games that we're going to talk about for this episode, and I always get great service, highly recommend Good Deal Games. Michael's a great guy to deal with, so uh, check him out. There's a lot of stuff on that website, gooddealgames.com. Um, I will put a direct link to downright bizarre games in the show notes and they're still in last week's show notes by the way so check it out and um you know you know what i should probably um, cover it in this podcast as well it does have some 7800 coverage so and uh what more do i have to say um that's pretty much it so why not jump right into today's featured games meteor shower and shoot the ufo 2015 I mentioned before that they're inspired by the Intellivision game Astro Smash. And remember, when I decided to cover this game, it was right after I heard that Keith Robinson had died. And Keith Robinson was one of the Blue Sky Rangers, which is the name of the in-house development team for Intellivision over at Mattel. I'll get into uh, who the Blue Sky Rangers are in just a moment. So here's what I can tell you about Astro Smash. Now, I must disclaim that um, I was never really an Intellivision person. You may have heard in a previous episode that I mentioned that um, I had at least one friend and I had cousins who had an Intellivision, and I had an Intellivision for a short time, didn't really care much for it. So if I say something really stupid, um, I apologize in advance. Then again, you all should be used to me saying stupid things by now. Anyway, having said that, Astro Smash was designed by John Soul. I think that's how it's pronounced, S-O-H-L. And John Soul was one of the original Blue Sky Rangers. And uh, here's where I might say something really stupid, so feel free to correct me. But uh, those of you who are not familiar with Intellivision's history, the Intellivision, as you may already know was the video game console made by the Hawthorne, California toy company, Mattel. The Blue Sky Rangers was the nickname of Mattel's in-house Intellivision development team, as you heard me say just a minute ago. With the Intellivision launched, Mattel actually outsourced its game development to a company called APH, or is it AF, I don't know, Technology Consulting, and they were a software development company in Pasadena, which was about an hour drive up the 110 from Hawthorne. In fact, APH also helped Mattel develop the Intellivision console itself in 1976. Some of the more known titles from APH include Las Vegas Poker and Blackjack, Space Armada, and Major League Baseball. 
But after a couple of years, Mattel realized, you know what? We could save money and therefore get larger profits if we didn't outsource our game development. Let's get our own in-house design team going. So that's what happened. Mattel formed an Intellivision development team that was composed of five engineers from other divisions of Mattel. There was Gabriel Baum, Don Daglo, or is it Daglo? Uh, Rick Levine or Levine, I don't know. I haven't heard these names pronounced. Uh, there was Mike Minkoff and Astro Smash designer himself, John Soul. And the name Blue Sky Rangers comes from an article that appeared in the June 19th, 1982 edition of TV Guide, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The author of the article, Howard Polskin, referred to the team as the Blue Sky Rangers because he wanted a more interesting sounding term than application software programmers. So where did that name actually come from? Well, the development team had what they called Blue Sky Meetings. And the article actually details a typical Blue Sky meeting. And it's a fun read. I highly recommend it again, putting the link in the show notes. Astro Smash was released October 15th, 1981, as part of a series of cartridges that Mattel called the Space Action Network. The Space Action Network was an attempt at marketing in television space games as the best available, complete with a television advertising campaign to compete with Atari's ads for their 2600 space games. Well, it appeared that the attempt worked because there were five games released in the Space Action Network series, and they sold in the neighborhood of a million units total. That is average of 200,000 per game. Pretty good sales right there. Now, when John Soul started to work on Astro Smash, he actually started it out as an Asteroids clone called Meteor! Exclamation point. The code for Meteor! was small enough that John decided, you know what, why don't I throw in a second game variation to this cartridge, and I will call this alternative version Avalanche! Exclamation point. However, there was a problem. Right before the scheduled release, the legal team at Mattel put the kibosh on Meteor out of fear that Atari might sue due to Meteor's similarity to Asteroids. And um, that was probably a very wise decision given how Atari would eventually sue Magnavox over Casey Munchkin just a month after the release of Astro Smash. But anyway, knowing that the game could not be released as is, John Soule had to hurry up and come up with a solution. Now, you might think that the obvious solution would be to just take out the Meteor code and just leave only Avalanche in the cartridge. There's a problem with that, though. If you've ever worked as a programmer or even as a book editor, you may realize that even the slightest, tiniest change can introduce any number of issues. And think about this. Removing an entire game from the cartridge, you're opening yourself up to a lot of problems, a lot of bugs. And knowing that, even if you don't have a lot of bugs, you still have to go through a lot of testing and retesting and that sort of stuff. So John's solution to this, make a tiny change in the code so that you did not have the option to play Meteor. That way, when you fire up the cartridge, you're going straight into Avalanche. So that was just small code. You just have to put a little piece of code in here that says, hey, skip all the code that'll play Meteor, just go straight into Avalanche. And it was a lot less risky doing that. And Avalanche was renamed Astro Smash, and that is how the game was released. Now, having said all that, knowing that the Meteor code still was in the cartridge, 
Does that mean that Astro Smash cartridges were essentially released with a hidden game? Oh yeah, oh yeah, it does. There have been reports of people accidentally triggering an alternative game. Common lore is that to play Meteor on an actual Astro Smash cartridge, what you need to do is cause the console to glitch out by repeatedly pressing the reset button on the Intellivision console. I guess that's kind of an equivalent to frying an Atari 2600. Both those people who unwittingly triggered Meteor on their Astro Smash cartridges and those who intentionally played Meteor via emulation or whatever other method you can do it on, they agree on one thing. Meteor is kind of a lame game. Astro Smash is much better. And um, the truth is, even John Soule admitted that. He said that Meteor is not a great game. And he really wasn't disappointed to see it not get, uh, well, officially released, as it were. There is one thing about Meteor that's worth mentioning, though, that makes it a bit different from Asteroids. As you undoubtedly know, in Asteroids, when you thrust, your ship actually moves around the screen. However, the perspective in Meteor is different in that you're kind of focused on the ship at all times. So if you thrust your ship in Meteor, your ship stays in one place while the rest of the screen scrolls and pans. So that's kind of interesting, even though people don't like the game that much. So going back to Astro Smash, not much more to say other than it was also released on the Atari 2600 with Mattel's M Network label, and it was called Astro Blast. And uh, one thing I didn't talk about with Astro Smash yet is the actual gameplay. So this is for those of you who aren't familiar with Astro Smash, or for those of you who are familiar but just want to hear whether or not I make some kind of stupid mistake. Well, I hope I satisfy everybody. Astro Smash kind of looks like a combination of asteroids and space invaders, and that's very likely what the intention was anyway. You control a laser cannon that moves left and right across the screen, and your job is to, uh, well, shoot everything you can and not get hit by falling rocks, spinners, and guided missiles. The meteors come in two sizes, big and small. Uh, if you shoot a large meteor, one of two things will happen. Either that meteor will completely be destroyed, or it will split into two smaller meteors, which will branch into different paths and still continue falling to the earth. Starting with the fourth level, a UFO will occasionally zip across the screen, further adding to the space invaders-ness of the game. Uh, oh, except one thing, the UFO in Astro Smash can actually fire at you. If anything touches your laser cannon, whether it be a spinner, a guided missile, a meteor, or whatever, you lose a life. You also lose a life if a spinner hits the ground, whether or not it actually touches you. So in a way, that's also kind of reminiscent of the Stern arcade game Astro Invader. So I uh, just wanted to throw that in there. But um, anyway, one thing that's unique about Astro Smash is that you can actually lose points. If anything hits the ground or if you lose a life, you actually have points deducted from your score with a minimum of score of zero. If you have a score of zero, you don't lose any points. Another unique feature of Astro Smash is that the background color changes as you reach certain milestones in your score. And uh, this feature actually is what contributed to Astro Smash getting a lot of flack when it was reviewed back when it was first released. There are some reviewers that called it an eyesore and used other creative language that I can't quite remember off the top of my head. Um, personally, I love it. So that's what I have to say about that. But uh, and as with most games, the game is over when you lose all your lives. So that's the 
basic premise of Astro Smash. So let's now talk about the two games in this podcast that were inspired by Astro Smash. And we're going to start with Shoot the UFO 2015. The official name is Shoot the UFO 2015, but you might hear me just talk about it as Shoot the UFO, depending on how I'm feeling at any particular point of this podcast. So what's the significance of the 2015 in the title of the game, Shoot the UFO 2015? Well, not really a heck of a lot. According to Breck, it was just simply because that's the year that he finished the game. So there. It is a game that is, in a way, a very simplified version of Astro Smash. As I mentioned before, the game was designed by Breck Brixius, also known as SiO2, or Silicon Dioxide, on Atari Age. If you've been listening to this podcast since it launched, you may remember Breck as the developer behind the homebrew Alpha Race. Breck used 7800 Basic to program Shoot the UFO, and when he posted the final version of the ROM on Atari Age on March 28, 2015, he included his source code in case anybody wanted to use it to learn 7800 Basic, or maybe tweak the game, hack the game, whatever. Now, I don't really have a lot to say about this game in terms of development. Indeed, this is going to be a very lopsided podcast with a little bit about Shoot the UFO and a lot about Meteor Shower. The reason for that is uh, it was a pretty quick, simple game that didn't really have a heck of a lot of development iterations. So the first time Shoot the UFO appeared was just a week and a half before the final release was posted, when Breck posted the first version after testing it in the MESS emulator and on an Atari 7800, modified with a special version of the 7800's BIOS ROM, I guess, uh, made specifically for developers. Really, the only thing that Breck needed to do between the first post and the final post was fix some collision detection. He also made a change in the gameplay in which, at first, it was possible that your laser cannon would get hit by an asteroid immediately after regenerating after losing a life. So what Breck did to fix that was to restart the asteroid sequence so that the player wouldn't have to deal with what he called a double hit. Um, it was hard for me to explain, but it's probably easier to visualize and understand the situation. According to Breck, Shoot the UFO 2015 was kind of a mashup of the demos included with 7800 Basic. And one of those demos was a game called Smashteroids a game designed by Steve Engelhart, whom you may know better as Atarius Maximus on Atari Age. Steve, as you may remember, was one of the programmers behind the 7800 homebrew Dungeon Stalker, which I discussed in episode 5 of this podcast. Steve says that his Smashdroids demo might be a good starting point for people interested in learning 7800 Basic because it demonstrates how to use a tiled screen map, a technique he recommends for making on-screen graphics. The idea of Shoot the UFO 2015 is pretty straightforward. You, um, shoot the UFO. Large and small asteroids are going to get in your way as you try to do that, though. Only the small asteroids are destructible. So that adds a new challenge. And remember, I said the game plays like a simplified version of Astro Smash, and simplified it absolutely is. The only objects you'll be firing at are asteroids and UFOs. Nothing fires at you. All you do is you avoid the asteroids. There are no spinners, no guided missiles, no loss of points. You just shoot stuff. 
The longer you last, the faster the game goes, and let me tell you, it gets really challenging really fast. The scoring is simple, 20 points for destroying a small asteroid and 100 points for shooting a UFO. You get three lives. Are there extra lives? Um, I don't know. The cartridge doesn't come with a manual to explain it, not that you really need one, the gameplay is simple enough. Um, and I'm really bad at this game and have never lasted long enough to find out for sure. I should say that even though Shoot the UFO from the gameplay and the graphics obviously looks like a derivative of Astro Smash, that actually wasn't Breck's direct intention. Rather, it was Steve Englehart's intention when he designed Smash Droids. He wanted to create a game based on Astro Smash. But since Shoot the UFO incorporates elements from Smash Droids, the connection is there simply by inheritance, I guess. But anyway, the Shoot the UFO 2015 cartridge label design has the same look and feel of a typical Tremel-era 7800 cartridge label. White gray, almost silver background, and the word Atari is there in black in the classic Atari font face, with 7800 in the typical large and dark red font face. The artwork is more cartoony than that of most 7800 games. In fact, it actually kind of reminds me of the Tower Toppler label artwork in a way. The end label, though, has custom artwork and does not follow the typical Atari 7800 format. And uh, like I said, there's no manual that comes with the game. You don't really need one. It's pretty simple. You just shoot stuff and you try not to die. Shoot the UFO is listed for sale on GoodDealGames.com with a note that only 30 copies were made. And uh, since I'm talking about it in this episode, and I've mentioned it in a previous episode, you know that I own one, which means that there are at most 29 copies available. So if you want a copy, go to gooddealgames.com and get one now while you still can. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes. So really, that's all that needs to be said about Shoot the UFO 2015. If anybody disagrees with me, or if, including, especially including Breck, please feel free to contribute. Please feel free to let me know so we can set the record straight. But hey, there you go. Nice, simple game. Shoot the UFO 2015. So let's move on and talk about this episode's other game, Meteor Shower. Now, Meteor Shower and Shoot the UFO 2015 look a lot alike. Indeed, if you play one shortly after the other, you'll feel like you're experiencing déjà vu. One did not beget the other, but both obviously were influenced by Astro Smash. So, let's look at the development of Meteor Shower. On May 22, 2011, Bob DiCrescenzo, also known as Pac-Man Plus on Atari Age, posted a work-in-progress ROM file of the game, and he also included some screenshots. There was a note that yet to come was two-player simultaneous mode and bonus lives, and Bob also hinted that there would be XM features later on. XM, of course, being the still-being-worked-on expansion module for the 7800. In response to Atari Age user Mad Bomber's question as to whether you could use paddles on Meteor Shower like you can in Astro Blast on the 2600, Bob said, nope, joystick only. And why? Well, because he never played Astro Blast. He was only familiar with Astro Smash. 
By the way, one of my favorite things on the development thread in Atari Age, a user named Atari Joe said, OMG, it's like Astro Blast for Intellivision, but with excellent graphics. <laughs> I think he meant Astro Smash. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of telling what he thinks about the Intellivision graphics. <laughs> but anyway, the day after that, Bob posted a newer version of the ROM in which the two-player simultaneous mode was added, as was Hyperspace, which is a feature not in Astro Smash. You pull down on the joystick to activate hyperspace. Bob said he considered making the second button on the joystick to be the hyperspace activator, but he opted out. He figured, let's just make it pull down on the joystick so that way it's compatible with as many controllers as possible, and you don't need to use a two-button joystick. Later on that same day, Bob posted already the first release candidate. What was new in the release candidate was there was now a bonus life after every thousand points, with a disclaimer that it actually might increase to 5,000 points before the actual release of the game. Also, there was a second flying saucer added once you reach 100,000 points. We'll get to that later on. And also, Bob announced that the cartridges would be made as soon as he found appropriate artwork to use for the label and the cartridge box. He also explained how he did the meteor graphics, and this is really fascinating. For the meteor graphics, Bob found pictures, photographs, of boulders online, and he reduced those pictures to four colors and then shrunk the resolution down to 16 by 16 pixels. So that's fascinating. These are the meteor graphics in the game are not hand-drawn. They're actually digitized photographs. But anyway, a couple of folks found the game to be a little bit too easy in normal mode, so Bob updated the next ROM with the aforementioned 5,000-point extra-life bonus. On May 24th, which is the following morning, now we're talking 5.45 a.m. my time here in Central Time, which I believe would have been 6.45 a.m. Bob's time, because I'm pretty sure he was living in Florida at the time. Still is, I think. But either way, it was too early for anybody to be legally out of bed, as far as I'm concerned. I just don't know how people can function that early. But anyway, Bob posted another updated ROM at that time, and this time with a sound indicator for a bonus ship added in by request. Roughly 24 hours later, there was another new ROM posted, and this time there's a bit of a delay when the rocks start coming down so you don't get killed as soon as your ship appears on the screen, kind of like what I mentioned earlier with Shoot the UFO. And also there was high scorecard compatibility and ergo by default XM compatibility. On May 27th, Bob posted another revision of the game, and this version fixed a bug involving the second UFO that comes out after your score reaches 100,000 points. And while he was at it, Bob replaced his own design for the ground in the game with a ground design made by Pac-Man Red. Now, why did he replace it? Quite simply because Bob felt that Pac-Man Red did a better version of the ground than Bob did. And Bob also posted pictures of the cartridge label designs by Mark Oberhäuser. Oh yeah, that's right, I said cartridge label designs plural. There were two designs, both of which were identical, except the background color would be the buyer's choice of either red gradient or blue gradient. And that same afternoon, Mark posted pictures of his box design, again with a choice of either red or blue. And of course, I will be posting a link to Mark's box designs in the show notes. And of course, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know the usual disclaimer, if you are in the United States, you cannot directly order the boxes through the order form. You actually have to send Mark a separate email to order the boxes. 
But anyway, by the time the boxes had been made, there were already countless put-me-down-for-a-cartridge messages on Atari Age, which is the usual happening with a homebrew. Oh, I want a copy! <laughs> so on May 29th, Bob announced that he's going to be taking names for orders the following week. There were a few Atari Age users who said, hey, I want a blue cartridge but a red box, or a red cartridge and a blue box. But of course, Bob had to remind these people, well, Mark and I are not actually working together on this because I live in Florida, Mark lives in Germany, so we're both independent. But regardless, Mark said the box design would cost 14 euros with a worldwide shipping of a tad under three and a half euros. Um, honestly, folks, I would tell you what the exact cost was, but uh, I don't know what the smaller unit of currency is, and I'm too freaking lazy to look it up, but uh, it was just a tad under three and a half euros. But anyway, two days later, May 31st, in response to an Atari age user who once again asked about using paddles, Bob said that because he was only familiar with the Intellivision Astro Smash and never actually played the 2600 Astro Blast, he was not planning to add paddle support. Bob started taking pre-orders on June 5th, requesting choice of color and $25 plus shipping to be paid not then, but when he had an idea of how many cartridges he'd have to make. And uh, just to show you the kind of person that Bob DiCrescenzo is, Atari Age user Hammer25 said, you know what, Bob, I'm just going to stick with the digital copy. I'm just going to download it and play it, but I will send you $25 for that. But what Bob said in response was, I don't charge for that. The ROM is there for your use. Don't worry about it. I only charge for actual cartridges. Any, he said, and I quote, anyone can download the bin, that is the binary file, as I always post the final versions. So that's just a tiny bit of the generosity that uh, Bob DiCrescenzo has demonstrated over the years. Seriously, the guy is super, super, super generous. I mean, he's bent over backwards for a lot of people many times with, without asking for anything in return. Nice guy. Seriously, if I ever meet the guy, I'm just going to give him a big hug first thing. <laughs> but um, getting back to the development story, in response to user questions, Bob said that once his original run would sell out, the game would be sold in the Atari Age store if Albert would allow it, <laughs> as if he wouldn't, please. Now, the next step in the history of Meteor Shower has nothing to do with anything major, really, but it's definitely worth mentioning. On June 19th, Bob posted a picture of a batch of manufactured Meteor Shower cartridges. So why am I mentioning that he posted a picture? Because it is a beautiful picture. I'm going to add it to the show notes. You got to see it. The next day, June 20th, Bob said he was ready to start processing the orders for the wait list of 39 buyers, and at that point, he was going to start asking for money, $25 per cartridge, with $2 shipping within the United States, and $3 international shipping. The next day, Mark announced that the boxes were ready to go as well. And of course, over the next several months, roughly five months, almost six, many Atari Age users were posting messages saying, hey, I got mine, been playing it, it's awesome. The usual stuff you could expect in response to homebrews and Atari Age. On December 1st, Bob posted a PDF version of a manual that he put together for the game. Into the next year, February 18th, 2012, Bob actually found a bug that would cause the game to fail if you play it in the MESS emulator, even though it played fine on actual Atari 7800 hardware. Bob wanted to make sure that the game would work well for anybody who wanted to play it, 
So he fixed the ROM so that it would work in both MESS and on the Atari 7800 console itself, and he posted an updated version of that ROM. And of course, Meteor Shower was eventually made available in the Atari Age store, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. Now, when was it released in the Atari Age store? I'm not really sure, but the earliest review I could find dates from December 2013, so we know that it was released in the store on or before December 2013. In May 2014, it was one of the eight titles that appeared on the very limited edition multi-cart released to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Atari 7800, and it's called the Bob DiCrescenzo Collection. I'm sure I've mentioned it before in previous episodes. So, it's all fine and dandy that we have an idea of how Meteor Shower was developed and what its influences were, but it would help if we knew how to play it, right? So, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how to play Meteor Shower. Meteor Shower's gameplay is basically identical to that of Astro Smash. Your goal is to destroy as many falling objects, rocks, dive bombers, spinners, saucers, as many of those as possible. Dive bombers are guided missiles, and the saucers are going to try to bomb you. And uh, you can actually blast away the saucers' bombs. You don't get any points for it, but it's uh, a way you can defend yourself. Your base is at the bottom of the screen, and you move left and right. Meteor Shower gives you a choice of either one or two players, and you choose the difficulty level as well. Easy, normal, or hard. If you choose easy, you start with zero points, and the objects are going to fall from the sky slowly. In normal mode, you start with 5,000 points and the objects fall a little bit faster than they do in the easy mode. If you choose hard mode, you start with 50,000 points and the objects fall to earth at their maximum speed. They start out at their maximum speed. The harder the difficulty you select, the more points you score by destroying rocks and enemies. Also, I should mention that the saucer doesn't appear in easy mode. The manual implies that the saucer is only there in hard mode, but I'm pretty sure I've actually seen it in normal mode, so the manual might be a bit wrong. However, I'm talking about the manual that Bob posted, like I mentioned before, and um, I don't actually have a print copy of the manual because I don't have the standalone version of Meteor Shower. I have it on the Bob DiCrescenzo collection, which did not come with a manual, mainly because the manual for Bob DiCrescenzo collection would have been insanely huge. Each object you destroy gives you a different score based on what your actual score happens to be at the time. The different ranges that determine your score are scores of 0 through 1,000, 1,000 through 5,000, 5,000 through 20,000, 20,000 through 50,000, 50,000 through 100,000, and over 100,000. Depending on which of those scoring tiers you are currently in, pardon the dangling preposition, a big rock will be worth either 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 points. Small rocks are double that, spinners are worth double what the small rocks are, and the dive bombers are worth double the point value of spinners. UFOs are worth 400 points if your score is between 20,000 and 50,000 points, and they're worth 500 points if your score is above 50,000. Now, you may have noticed, if you are that um, attentive, you may have noticed that I mentioned six different score ranges, but I only mentioned five different point values for each object. Well, the thing is, the six different score range, according to the manual, the point value of anything you shoot is simply a question mark. And uh, 
quite honestly, I have not done that well yet to figure out if there's a actual set number of points you score for each object once you reach 100,000 or if it's random or what. So I don't know. I don't know. If anybody cares to uh, clarify it, that'd be wonderful. And also, as you score through those aforementioned tiers, the background color changes, just like it does in the Intellivision version. Depending on what score range you're in, the background color will be black, royal blue, or purple. <laughs> Mine is royal blue, but I've seen a couple of uh, videos which it's purple. Uh, but the background could be teal or gray or brown. But um, anyway, if something lands on the Earth, you lose points. Going by the same score ranges, the same tiers, if a big rock lands, you lose either 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, or question mark points. A small rock is worth twice that much, a spinner twice that of a small rock, and a dive bomber twice that of a spinner. If a spinner actually lands, you lose a life regardless of whether it touches you. If you lose your life in any other way, you'll lose either 100, 200, 300, 400, or 500, or question mark points. So yeah, losing a life causes you to lose points. You get an extra base with every 5,000 points. And uh, you're probably wondering, hmm, is there a loophole? What if I score 10,000 points, and then I lose points and get below 10,000 points, and then I go over 10,000 points again, do I get another bonus life? Nope, you only get a bonus life the first time you reach whatever the increment is. And of course, you use a joystick to move your base left and right, and if you want to use hyperspace, move your joystick in a downward direction to activate hyperspace and have your base instantly placed in a random position. Press the fire button to fire. If you use a two-button stick, press either button to fire. And hey, because I like to acknowledge high scores, we should talk about the high scores for Media Shower that I was able to find. And uh, this is devastatingly shocking, I'm sure. But the highest scores I could find were done by Wilson Oyama, better known as Oyama Family on Atari Age. For Easy Mode of Meteor Shower, he scored 59,375. And for Normal Mode, he scored 107,680. And at Hard Difficulty, he scored 128,155. Man, that's... That's insane. I can't, I don't think I've ever gotten a hundred thousand in this thing yet. So, oh, wow. Good job. Good job, Wilson. That was great. And that was done through emulation, I believe. Not a heck of a lot in terms of feedback, which, uh, not terribly surprising because these aren't the absolute most popular titles in the catalog, although they're probably very well worth your time. But we did get uh, feedback from Trek MD, hearing from him a second time today. And he says, all right, I believe I'm on time. <laughs> Here's my feedback for Shoot the UFO and Meteor Shower. And he starts with Shoot the UFO 2015. Shoot the UFO is a game that at first glance appears to be a clone of Astro Blast for the Atari 2600, which itself is a version of the Intellivision's Astro Smash. First glances, though, can be deceiving. The object of Shoot the UFO is just what the title says, shooting the unidentified flying object that flies at the top of the screen from side to side while avoiding indestructible large asteroids and randomly moving smaller asteroids. If any of these touch you, boom goes your starship and you lose a life. The smaller asteroids can be destroyed by your laser, which is an important part of the gameplay. 
This game is one of those easy-to-learn-difficult-to-master type of games. The object is simple enough, destroy the UFO as often as you can, but getting to that UFO with your laser does get tricky, as you have to avoid all the asteroids that are coming at you that also block your fire. Never mind that the UFO varies its speed when moving on either direction at the top of the screen. I find this game to be fun, but in short bursts as the gameplay is repetitive. It would have been cool if there were power-ups or other features added to it to add some variety. Nonetheless, like I said, it can be certainly enjoyed. And for Meteor Shower, he says, uh, Mr. DiCrescenzo attacks again! This time he brings us an appropriate version of Astro Smash, Astro Blast, to the Atari 7800. I don't know quite what he means by that <laughs> appropriate version. <laughs> Not only does Meteor Shower capture the gameplay of Astro Smash, it expands upon it by providing options not available in the original game. Meteor Shower can be played by one or two players alternating, but also in true 7800 fashion, you can have two-player simultaneous play for a nice competitive round. In addition, the game has easy, normal, and hard levels to choose from. Meteor Shower also updates the graphics of the original Intellivision game by taking the simple mountains that appear on that version and giving us a cratered surface and more detailed multicolor asteroids. The other enemies, spinners, dive bombers, and saucers, have also been updated with more detailed graphics as well as your own ship. The control is crisp and the action does get pretty frenetic as the game progresses. Sounds are also nicely done and take on the original game sounds from the Intellivision version. This is certainly a fun shooter for the 7800 and one I can easily recommend. Certainly if you've never played either Astro Smash on the Intellivision or Astro Blast on the 2600 and enjoyed those games, you're sure to enjoy this updated take on the game. Thank you, TrekMD. I highly do. I enjoy both of these games very much, actually. I don't think I ever played the Intellivision version, though. I really don't. I've only seen pictures of it, and uh, that's it, you know? <laughs> so I really don't know what I missed with the Intellivision version. In fact, that's the second Intellivision game that we talked about in this podcast, which I didn't play the original Intellivision version. But hey, thank you so much, TrekMD, and I think that does it for feedback. <laughs> So it's come to this, the end of episode 16. Wow, I've been doing this for 32 weeks already. <laughs> episode 15, 15? No, 16. I've forgotten how to count during the process of doing this podcast. So now is when I kind of wax poetic or philosophical or something. I just wax about uh, my thoughts. Shoot the UFO, Meteor Shower, two completely different games that kind of have the same overall vibe and they were both inspired by the same game in the first place. They are two completely different animals though. Uh, I was asked on Facebook actually, uh, would you recommend shoot the UFO? And truth be told, I, I really don't know. It depends on what you like. Um, I highly enjoy it myself. Basically the, the, the huge difference I think between shoot the UFO 2015 and meteor shower is that meteor shower requires a lot more strategy. It really does shoot the UFO. You pretty much know from the get go that um, you're eventually going to be slaughtered. So <laughs> it's a Twitch game in a way. And basically it, there's not really a lot to it. It's very simple as you heard before, but at the same time, it, does give you a challenge. There is something there that makes you want to keep playing it and playing it and playing it. See if you can go further and further and further. 
And uh, Meteor Shower has a lot more to it than that, so I don't really think there's a fair comparison between the two. But this was an interesting episode to do, because I learned a little bit about Intellivision. Well, one thing I didn't mention that I learned, it wasn't for Astro Blast, at least I don't think it was for Astro Blast, but there was one game that the Blue Sky Rangers were working on, and which there was a bug that came up in testing that they couldn't figure out how to fix. They're like, oh, either they couldn't figure it out or it just required too much time and they wanted to get the game out the door. So they came up with a new policy. What would happen was if there was a bug found in a game that was too hard to fix or too time consuming to fix, what they would do is they would document it as a special feature. So if you're playing an Intellivision game, and you notice something really weird happening and it's mentioned in the manual, chances are that was an unintentional bug that Mattel decided, you know what, let's just go with it and just throw it in there as a special feature. <laughs> uh, you hear probably from a lot of computer programmers and other kind of nerds that, uh, oh, it's not a bug, it's an undocumented feature. Well, Mattel actually turned bugs into documented features. That's that's great. That's great. Oh, I try to get people to do that at my job, but the thing is the clients probably wouldn't go for it. But having said that, well, Meteor Shower, that's the 11th Bob DiCrescenzo homebrew covered in just 16 episodes of this podcast. I mean, Bob has the 7,800 homebrew market cornered. And you know what? We're actually going to make it 12 with the next regular episode when we talk about Armor Attack, or as it's called on the 7800, Armor Attack 2. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You heard me say regular episode? Does that mean something interesting? Well, in case you didn't see my messages online, the next episode is actually going to be a crossover episode with my other podcast, Pie Factory Podcast. Episode 17, the next episode, is scheduled to be an interview with Jeffrey Lee. And in case you've never heard of Jeff, he's a graphic artist. Uh, he's done artwork and books and other things, and uh, literally train overpasses in Oak Park, Illinois. Well, he also created all of the characters and the basic general look and feel of a certain game you've probably heard of called Cubert. So uh, we sat down, we had a nice little conversation with Jeff, and uh, that will be the content of episode 17. Hope you enjoy it. Episode 18 will be the armor attack episode, and there's kind of a reason for this schedule. Right now, I'm announcing another contest. Yay! The prize, the prize is Mark Oberhäuser's box for armor attack. And um, I right now, I just want to express great thanks to Mark for offering that up. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, this contest actually ties together the Jeff Lee interview, the Armor Attack episode, and episode 19, which is going to cover Ken Sider's excellent homebrew version of Qbert, which is called Bonk. Now, here's what you need to do. Listen to the theme music of this podcast, the same music I've been using since the very beginning. In the introductory episode, episode zero of this podcast, I mentioned that the theme music is completely organic, none of that electronic 8-bit chip simulation or anything like that. I like real homegrown music, and I mentioned that I played all the instruments except for the drums, which come courtesy of GarageBand. I might have mentioned also that I write music too. Um, little confession for you, the theme music for the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast um, I didn't write a single note of it. Everything in it is ripped off of other things. I should have mentioned that in episode 15, ripoff. Oh, well. 
But um, obviously, you can hear the Have You Played Atari Today jingle in the music. That's uh, what the lead guitar plays. The bass line and the chord pattern, um, basically, I cribbed that from Baby It's You, a song by a guy named Jeffrey Foskett. And the very end part, that's nothing but the 12-string guitar, that was taken from, uh, well, you're probably thinking A Hard Day's Night. Well, not exactly. Yes, it's based on the end of A Hard Day's Night. It has uh, I, That's what I was going for. That's the feel I was going for. But the actual notes that I'm playing are from something completely different. And I'll tell you this much. The actual melody that those notes are playing is where the contest comes in. Email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. That's homebrew78 at fab, and then the actual number 4, and then it.com. Homebrew78 at fab4it.com. Tell me what that melody is or where it came from, and I'll give you a hint. It is directly related to episode 19's topic. Think about what episode 19 is going to be about, which of course is a homebrew version of Qbert. So that's your clue. The winner will be announced during episode 19. If I get more than one correct answer, I will pull all the correct entries together and do some kind of drawing. Now, last contest I had, my dog Ruthie chose the winner. Uh, Whether she's going to be doing that again for this contest, I'm not sure. But anyway, good luck to all of you who who participate. So I'm just going to move right into ending the show. But before I do that, I feel obligated, not just obligated, but also I want to thank the following people. Uh, Richard Grounds, Richard Valdez, Jimmy G, Ed Ladin Controllers, and Gray Defender, thank you all for your support on Patreon. If you would like to uh, financially support this podcast a little bit every month, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78 and um, give what you can or what you feel it's worth giving. If you can't give, then hey, don't. Just sit back and uh, enjoy the podcast. And um, you can email me for any reason at the aforementioned address, homebrew78 at fab4it.com. The show notes are located at homebrew78.fab4it.com. Twitter handle is homebrew78. YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And we are scheduled to be back in two weeks from whenever you're hearing this with an interview with Qbert's creator, Jeffrey Lee. And until then and beyond then, have a wonderful day and please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Bye-bye.